0: to be a Christian very long before you learn that the relationship between this new life that you have as a Christian, as a follower, and the world is, a, is kind of a thorny issue. It's confusing because on one hand, we know that we're called to love the world, right? Because we all know the Bible says, for God so loved the world. Now, Not only that, we know that the Bible says that the whole world displays the handiwork of God, and we all know what the Great Commission says. The Great Commission calls us to go into the world and make disciples. So having said that, we as followers of Christ have something to do with the world around us. We got a plan, we have an agenda, we have a task. But on the other hand, the Bible also tells us not to love the world, right? We're called not to love the world, but to flee from the things of the world. To expect that the world that we live in will also hate us. It will... Hurt us. It will want nothing to do with uh, do with us. In fact, the Bible also tells us that the world is passing away. It's passing away, and therefore we are called to distance ourselves from the world. So, how in the world, we, how in the world, are we supposed to reconcile the two? So, God in His grace, He's brought us to this wonderful passage or passages, uh, which gives us kind of a balanced view, a view that will help us in the way that we ought to see our relationship. With the world. So <clears throat> in this account, get this, we have Jacob and his sons, and, and they meet with the Pharaoh after coming to Egypt to join Joseph. Now, repeatedly throughout scripture, Egypt is personified as kind of like the place of luxury, the place of, of wealth. When you think of Egypt, everyone thinks of power, everyone thinks of development, everyone thinks of just just the highest technology of the highest level of government, of, of royalty, so on and so forth. And then when we see Jacob and his sons, they personify something too, because for them, when you think of them, they represent what? The covenant people of God. So we have Egypt, right, which is the power and the luxury and the wealth and the, and the world essentially. And then we have the Jacob and his sons who are the covenant people of God. So do you get this imagery? We have here now the people of God moving into the heart of the world. That's what's happening, okay? We have the covenant people of God, right? God's distinct chosen people who are now moving into the heart, the the heart of the world. Now, they're going to move into this world, into Egypt, to live a life, to work, to live, to do what you all have to do. Now, from all this, I have a couple points I want to make. First is this. God made you a pilgrim in this world. He made you a pilgrim. Can everyone point to, not point to your neighbor? Say to your neighbor, you're a pilgrim in this world. <laughs> now, the word, now, the word pilgrim is probably not a word you've used much, unless you're reading like John Bunyan's book, The Pilgrim's Progress. Or maybe it's Thanksgiving, and so you're giving your child a brief lesson in American history. But the word pilgrim is actually a wonderful word because it speaks of someone who lives in a land that is not his own. Very much like the English separatists who came and settled in Plymouth. We've all, we all know that history. We know that fact. But it also accurately applies to the Christian living in the world that is not our own, this world. That's how Jacob and his son saw themselves. They saw themselves as pilgrims in Egypt. In verse 4, the sons sa- <coughs> son say to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land. Now the Hebrew word used here is the word ger, which means, which means this. We're not, we won't be living with blood relatives, meaning he's saying, we are living among foreigners, meaning he's saying that we're not living with fellow residents. That's, that's what it means here. We're not living with fellow residents. Then in verse 9, Jacob, the dad, used the same word ger to describe his whole life. The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years, meaning this. Jacob is saying, look, I've been a pilgrim my entire life. I've been a pilgrim my entire life. So let's examine this for a moment here because we got a couple points I want to dig out from this. First is this. Pilgrims don't make up the rules. They live by the law of the land. They submit to the land. Now, we know from the previous chapters that Joseph had virtually unlimited power to do whatever he wanted to do in Egypt. I mean, get this. He was so powerful that as he, as he would be riding his chariot and as he rode by people randomly just across the street or down the road, people would automatically have to bow to him. They would have to submit to him. They would have to honor and revere him. And not only that, the Pharaoh had promised Joseph's family That the best of everything would be given to them if they came to Egypt. Now, what's with this bending of the laws then mean? Well, still, despite all those luxuries, here in our text at the end of chapter 46 and also in the beginning of chapter 47, the whole focus of the story is the meeting with Pharaoh to get his permission, is to get his permission to live in the land in the region of Goshen. Why? Why? Why didn't they just say, hey, remember Joseph? We're coming here in Joseph's authority, in Joseph's name. He's the one who said that we can kind of do whatever we want, live wherever we wanted. And why couldn't they also go to Goshen or wherever they wanted based on the previous promise from the Pharaoh? Because the Pharaoh said, hey, you can come here and you can live wherever you want and I'll give you all the luxuries of the world. Well, because God simply called his pilgrims to live still subject under the lawful authority of the land. And we see that as Joseph makes a plan for a delegation to go talk to Pharaoh. I mean, get this. In the, in chapter 46, even though the brothers are coming, even though Joseph said you can live wherever you want, and Pharaoh said you can live wherever you want, Joseph still had to take this time to coach his brothers about what they should expect. Right? We just heard that. He coached him about what they expect. In fact, Joseph Kind of had a concern. His concern was, how will this actually go? How will this actually happen? Because even though there appeared to be a lot of grace from the Pharaoh, Joseph still recognized, you know what? The Pharaoh can say whatever he wants, but still, he had full authority over this pilgrim family. He could switch on a dime. Anything can go. But not only that, living as a pilgrim, you're going to face adversity. You're going to face adversity. Not only do you have to submit to the law of the land, but you will also face adversity. Now, the reality is this. You will be marginalized. You will be discriminated. You will face the prejudice of people who don't know you or understand you and and don't know why you are the way that you are and why you believe what you believe and why you say the things you say and do the things that you do. And so we see here in this previous chapter when the brothers of Joseph were dining at Joseph's house. This is at Joseph's house. They actually had to sit at a different table than the Egyptians. Why? Because the Egyptians would never associate with Hebrews. They don't want anything to do with the Hebrews. Then again, we get it in chapter 46, verse 34. Joseph says this to his brothers. Hey, just fair warning. Shepherds are considered an abomination to the Egyptians. What does he mean by that? He's saying this. The Egyptians, okay, think the Hebrews are detestable, are disgusting, are despised. Egyptians look down upon us, upon you. And so you might think right now, how in the world could God's people expect to live under such a hateful and such an oppressive type of attitude? Now, our tendency is this, to assimilate and be indistinguishable from the others, but we can't do that because it's in our distinct faith, it's in our separate type of attitude mentality that makes us pilgrims. We are called to live peacefully under authority, but live still distinctly as the people of God, right? distinctly as the people of God, no matter how much pressure we face. In fact, that's what Jesus says here in John chapter 17. Jesus prays this. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Now what happens is that when people come to faith, Whether you're a new Christian or an old Christian, whatever. But what happens typically is that as a Christian, you are tempted with two kinds of attitudes, okay? And these two kinds of attitudes, they come very naturally to us, and oftentimes they don't serve us well as pilgrims for Christ. And this is the first attitude. First is that we might become hostile to the authorities of the world, we become hostile. So we say things like, why should I submit myself to such godlessness? Why should I submit myself to such paganism? Why should I submit myself to a society and to a government and to an employer perhaps and to an organization, a company that does not respect my faith, that has such disregard for who I am? They don't care about my concerns. So all I'm going to say is, forget them. I don't care about them. I'm going to live for my own. I'm going to do whatever I want and not listen to anything those unbelievers would ever say to me. Now that might sound extreme, but think about all the self-righteous people that maybe you've met in the past. Or maybe you were that self-righteous person at one point where you wish you could just live completely separate from these people and not care about their rules, not care about their opinions. And by the way, this is not just about the law of the land in terms of what is legal and what is illegal, but that self-righteousness A person who is self-righteous will also ignore the law of common decency. The common decency. So it's impossible to have a conversation with a self-righteous person because they believe they're always right. They only voice their opinions. They're narrow-minded. We're talking about people who are saying they're Christians, by the way. They're narrow-minded. They're unwilling to reason, to have a dialogue with them. You know? You can't have that type of attitude as a pilgrim. You can't have that type of attitude as a Christian. But on the other hand, it's also easy to forget about being a pilgrim altogether and just kind of join in, join into the world. And this is what happens more often than not, is that we just assimilate into our culture, into our society, into our world, so much that we soon begin to adopt the world's agenda, the world's values. And, but what happens is that we lose our distinction. When we do that, when we just totally immerse ourselves into our culture, into the world, we lose our flavor. We lose our our light, we lose our saltiness. And so the way we think, the way we love, the goals that we pursue, the the way we define things are all filtered now through the lens of the world rather than in Christ. And sadly, no one would know that you are a Christian based on your life. There's no distinction. And that's a really good question to ask ourselves right now. Now think about yourself, think about your life for a moment. Take out the Sunday afternoon, which you would presumably be here. Take out the Sunday afternoon. Take out, let's say, your life group evening, those two, three hours that you spend with your life groups. Take that out. If someone were to look into your life from Monday all the way through Saturday, what would they see? Would they see hostility against the world? Would they see a life that is indistinguishable from the world? Or would they see a pilgrim's progress of maturing holiness, of struggling and yet still loving those around them? What would someone see as they look into your life? And so the path we're on is not easy, folks. It's not. But here's the thing. Simply surviving as a pilgrim in this dark world, that's not our ultimate goal either. Because God, he's got a bigger plan than something just about you. He's got a bigger plan, and that's my second point and final point. And that is God, he wants to bless the world through your pilgrimage. He wants to bless the world through you. How awesome is that? You know, ever since Grace and I got married, one thing we both really wanted was a home of our own. And I think a lot of people have that natural desire, right? To have a home, to stop bleeding money through rent, or whatever you want to call it, and and start paying mortgage and you invest in all that stuff. But the reason we wanted a home was to bless others. Now, I know, I know that, that many of you desire a big enough home. Hear what I said, big enough home, right? Not just a big home. But a big enough home to accommodate your family, but to also invite guests, to invite fellow members of the church, to bless as well. So I know that you know what I'm talking about, right? You know what I'm talking about. By the way, I have to say that we have some of the most generous and hospitable members here, I got to say. So turn to your neighbor and say, you're pretty good. I am blessed and proud of all of you, really. You know, really. It, sometimes I'll I'll be kind of I'll be a little bit more bold and I'll come to people that I haven't met with and I say, hey, buy me lunch tomorrow. And they'll say, oh yeah, absolutely. You know, there is such generosity here, and so it's really a blessing. Okay, so the idea behind having a home is this: that when a guest comes, God, this is a prayer that we should have as the host. Okay, that as a guest comes into our home. We would want, we would grant, we would hope that God would grant two things. Two things. That we, first, as hosts, would be a blessing to them. Right? That's what we would want. To be a blessing to them, that our homes would, would ensure or enable them to come and be refreshed, to be recharged, to be replenished. You get what I'm saying? That when they come into our home, they would experience such just love. They would experience such truth and such just compassion and security. They would experience the love of Christ. That is the first thing that we would want. But secondly, our hope would be that we would be blessed by the guests. You get what I'm saying? That even though we are the ones who have opened our doors to them, that we're the ones pouring into them, that in that process of us loving on them, that we would actually be refreshed. That we'll be refreshed and not just weary, because it can get tiring. I get that, but especially after a long conversation. But here's the thing: even though we get tired, it will be a good kind of tired. Do you get what I'm saying? A good kind of weary. A weary yet joyful experience. A weary yet contentment, what you would experience. Contentment. You would experience weariness, yet you know that you'd be connecting with that person or persons. By the way, some of us, we just don't like doing that. We don't want to reach out to people because we're tired. We prefer to uh, hang out with our best friend, Netflix and ice cream, right? So we want to kind of remove ourselves and because we're fearful, I'm already tired, I'm already working 40, 50, 60 hours a week, how could I possibly muster up the strength to just engage with people on a personal level and pour out, but let me tell you this, In my years of pastoring, I have met with many people. I have driven far to meet with people. I've met them, despite my crazy chaotic week, I've met them even in my sickness. I've met them late into the evening. I've even met them early in the morning. I've met them even if they didn't like me, and I've met them even if I didn't like them. I'll be honest with you, I'm not perfect. But let me tell you this, and this is God's honest truth. I cannot recall a single moment in all those hundreds of encounters with my members, with my church family, with the people I've been reaching out to, not once have I ever once regretted it. Not once. Not once have I ever left a meeting saying, well, that was just a waste. Not once have I ever left a a conversation or a dinner or just a coffee break with that person thinking, well, that was just a complete failure or a waste of my time. I've had people in those meetings tell me that, you know what, Pastor David, I'm not going to come back to to your church. So it was not the most encouraging talk. But guess what? I was okay. Why? Because I knew that at that moment, God was still present. That God was still doing something. And folks, oftentimes, the hardest part in loving people and being loved back is simply the first step. But after that first step, after you meet with them, Yes, it can be awkward, yes, it can be a bit difficult, but when it's done for the purposes of drawing near to Christ, through encouragement, even through a gentle admonishment, through even a casual dinner or a small, simple morning coffee break with them, get this, as a follower, as a pilgrim, when you go out intentionally advancing to be in their life and for them to be in your life, God will be present and He will ensure that your meeting is worthwhile and life-giving. He will ensure that. It is, you won't have any regrets. So don't just break bread when we say we etched into our Shining Star calendar that life groups, you got to do this. No, I hope and I pray that you would pray and break bread with them, that you would pray together, that you would hang out together, that you would encourage each other just because, just because God is asking you to be a blessing to them. And that's what it means to be a pilgrim to go out and be a blessing. So in a similar way, we see God sent his people to Egypt for two complementary reasons. First, is that it would be in Egypt that God would build this pilgrim, small group of people into a great nation. But secondly, their presence in Egypt might serve God's purposes for the Egyptians. Why? Because get this, it's not just about being blessed by God but that we are blessed by God to be a blessing to others. Does it make sense? Do not be the dead sea. You know what the dead sea is? The dead sea is a sea that is so salty, so stagnant, that there is no life living in there. It is just salty. In fact, there are rivers, there are channels, there are streams, and, and it certainly rains over that area. And it will fill up with water, but that sea itself will never give back. I pray that not only as a church, but as a pilgrim, as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, that we won't simply be a dead sea, but a life-giving river. Right? Be a blessing to others. Don't just selfishly hoard the blessings of God. But take what God has given you and bless others. Can you say amen? So hang with me, people. From verses 7 through 10, <clears throat> there was a personal meeting between Jacob and the Pharaoh. Now, this meeting was different from the meeting of, between Pharaoh with Jacob's sons. Because at the first meeting, the sons were seeking after Pharaoh's favor. They were saying, hey, Pharaoh, almighty one, we are seeking permission so that we can live in the land in the region of Goshen. But get this, in the second meeting, the meeting between not the sons, but the dad Jacob and the Pharaoh... Jacob doesn't do that. Jacob doesn't ask for anything. Jacob asks for nothing. Instead, Jacob does something kind of crazy. He blesses Pharaoh. Not once, but twice. Use your your imagination here for a second. Usually when people come into the Pharaoh's presence, they come in bowing. They come in not even making (laughs) eye contact. He is the Pharaoh after all. And so these people, when they approach the almighty Pharaoh, who's supposed to be the God Ra incarnate, they are approaching him seeking blessings from the Pharaoh. They're seeking favor from the Pharaoh. But here comes Jacob, and rather than seeking blessings from Pharaoh, he takes it upon himself, and he pronounces blessing on Pharaoh. And in case you missed it, Jacob, before he leaves, before the, at the end of that conversation with Pharaoh, he blesses Pharaoh again. Do you know what the world needs? They need God's blessings. The world needs God's blessings. you know what your neighbors need? They need God's blessing. You know what your, your, your unbelieving family member or your spouse or your girlfriend, boyfriend, they need God's blessing. The world doesn't know, just like the Pharaoh didn't know, but they need God's blessing. And this whole Jacob blessing Pharaoh was crazy as it go, because as it goes, the greater always blesses the lesser. But this is completely reversed. Because it seems like a safe assumption that the almighty, wealthy, powerful, reigning Pharaoh was greater And then this nobody Hebrew tribesman was lesser. But Jacob had something that the Pharaoh didn't. Jacob had God. Do you have God? Do you have God? Did you know that you have God? You know, there's a funny story, true story. I have a friend who was uh, doing a DTS at Kona, Hawaii, where Jennifer just got back from. And there's a hotel right near the campus there where the missions team, they would often come back to and, the, and so they would reserve like a conference area, they would reserve some rooms to kind of just pamper the DTSers for a job well done. I don't know if they continue doing that or not. Well my friend and his wife, they were there and suddenly the wife says, hey, that's Megan Fox and Brian Austin Green. Now you youngins probably know Megan Fox, but Green was a popular show back in my day called, and he was in 90210, right? Suddenly, my friend's wife tells her husband, hey, we should go and pray for him. And so he's like, hey, no. (laughs) Now, what happened was Megan Fox, this is such juicy gossip, isn't it? Megan Fox and her hubby, Brian Austin Green, had just done a secret wedding. Right, they just got a secret wedding in Kona, and there they are. There's no paparazzi because no one knew, but God knew. And so my friend's wife said, "We need to go pray for them. The Spirit is urging us, urging me to go pray for them. They need to be blessed too, because it's clear that they just got married." And so my friends, so my friend said, "Okay, well let's go. Let's go talk to them." So they came to them. And they said, hi, um, we are so-and-so, and um, this may sound weird, but uh, did you guys just get married? They're like, yes. And then so my friends said, God told us to come here and pray for you. Can we pray for you? And immediately they said, yes, please. So they prayed for him at that moment in the most random place in time. Two missionary DTSers placed their hand upon Megan Fox and Brian Austin Green and prayed a blessing that God would maintain them, keep them, love them, bless them, and that salvation would come to their house. So my friends prayed for them, and uh, they said that Megan Fox was truly appreciative and, and her husband was really appreciative as well. It doesn't matter who it is. It can be a famous star, it can be Bill Gates, it can be the president of the United States. It doesn't matter how famous, how powerful, how rich they are. They may have it all, but you have God. You have the blesser. You have God, and God has given us the authority to bless others. God has given us the authority to make an impact in the lives of people around us. Jacob was God's man. Jacob was the heir of the Creator's blessing. Pharaoh may be great, but the only true great one was God. Now, if you know anything about the ancient practice of mummification, they did it for one reason. It's because the Egyptians, they were seeking after the afterlife through immortality. You see, the Egyptians, they were obsessed with death. That's why they always had like these witches and they had these sorcerers and conjurers and they're trying to figure out how to continue living and how to live even in the afterlife and this immortality and all this stuff. And so the Pharaoh professed to be immortal, but guess what? They weren't immortal. They died too. In fact, the ancient Egyptian historians, they said this, that many of the Pharaohs back then, they would always hope and pray to their gods or pray to themselves, I don't know, that they would live up to 110, the age of 110. Why? Because if you can live up to that point, which was pretty high, that was considered great. That was considered something where you were able to be revered and totally worshipped and immortalized and and remembered in a sense. But then as Pharaoh, who's trying to live up to that age, he meets this Hebrew tribesman, this dad, this old guy who has a bunch of sons, and he sees this guy who is 130 years old. 130 years old. Already the ways of the Egyptian life, the values were already beginning to take a hit. So Jacob, he blessed Pharaoh. And what was that about? It was a foreshadowing of God blessing the pagan world, God blessing the unbelieving world through Jesus, the immortal one, the endless one, Jesus who was and is and wasn't and is to come. That's it was a foreshadowing. The blessing on Pharaoh was just a foretaste of what Jesus would do throughout the world, because Jesus is now bringing the undeserved blessing of His grace upon us all. So, what does that mean for us? Our role as a pilgrim, it is not to simply trek through life unscathed. No, we are called to bless and to bless others, and let me say this: it requires courage. It does. To bless others, it requires being the salt and light. It requires laboring with one another. It requires a lot of patience, a lot of understanding, and that not everyone will agree or share or approve of our ways, but regardless, we must labor to make the gospel known. And in that labor, we have to be confident that through the gospel of Jesus, God, he is somehow in some way fulfilling to bless the whole world. He's doing something even if you can't see it. Even if they reject your blessing, God's still doing something. You, you believe that? I'm going to end with this. It comes from Jeremiah 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give away your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there wherever you are. Do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. In other words, he's saying, as you bless the city, don't you know that you'll be blessed too? For thus says the Lord, host, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie, for they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon... I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to my place, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. God's plans may be different from yours. Most likely, they are different from yours. Perhaps you simply want to be blessed and live comfortably in that blessing, but you are reminded today through God's word that this is not your home. This is not your home. This is not your place of residence. God will bring you back to his place in his time. He will bring you back to his place, and you know what that is? That is in his presence in, in heaven, folks. Today and for the rest of your life here, you are a You are a pilgrim, you are a traveler, you are a sojourner, but you are a pilgrim with a purpose. Yes, you need to submit to the land. Yes, you must also guard your spirit and grow in holiness, but you must know that you're placed right here. Did you know that? You are placed by God right here in this life, in your family, in your organization, in your company, in your school, in this community, and in this nation, not only to be blessed, but to be a blessing to others so that they too may one day worship the name that is above all names, that they may be blessed to call Jesus Lord and Savior just like you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your faithfulness and the encouragement of your word that Really a wonderful reminder, God, that this, that this is not, this is not it. This is not the finish line. And it's, and it's kind of scary to know that because we have poured so much of ourselves into this time, but God, which is why all throughout Scripture, you constantly remind us of just thinking of living in the now, but thinking ahead as well. That there's this idea, Father, that we are investing, sure, but not in the temporal, but in the eternal. God, would you remind us today of that amazing truth, that there's life after this? And that you have asked us to be a blessing to those who don't know you. Whether you are a millionaire or not, people, if you know Christ, you have already won you are already blessed much more than any Pharaoh. And that's what Jacob knew. He knew God. Pharaoh did not know God. But God, he wanted Pharaoh to know him. And folks, God is urging us in our pilgrimage, not to just wander aimlessly through life, doing what we think we ought to do. No, God has given us a strategic plan. He says, bless others. Let my name be known. Let my name be known. Let's take a minute or two, okay, just to pray. As you reflect on what you've heard, pray, meditate, And just give it up to God and say, Lord, I've been living so just in such a finite way. Thinking that this is it. So I've been putting all my eggs in this basket called the world. And Lord, forgive me of that. I want to live more with an eternal perspective. I want to live investing not in things but in people. God, would you help me to do that? Would you give me the courage to go forward in, in boldness? despite my many failures, but to go and just share what I do know and what I have experienced in the Lord. That is the transformation that can only come by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Lord, I want people to know that. So let's take a minute or two and and pray, and then after that we'll uh, head into our communion time. So let's pray. Lord's Supper, as as our eyes are closed, as we're bowed, you, you guys can stand, sit, doesn't matter, but what's beautiful about the Lord's Supper is that there's, there's aspects to it that I think we need to know and understand and reflect on the first being is that it's really not a testament of our faith but of, of Christ of his amazing love for us and that's portrayed through the elements that we take the juice his blood and the bread his body But we also want to remember him in this. That's why this is also an act of worship, where we get to remember and count the worth and the meaning of the person and work of our Lord Jesus. But this is also an expression of relationship. Because as we take this, we're not taking it as just as someone would take a normal meal. We are taking this as the body of Christ. That you and I are connected, that we are unified by the blood of Jesus That there is harmony, there is oneness in in terms of our love, in terms of our values, our commitment, and our vision as the body of Christ. And so, this is only for those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? If you are not a believer, I, I pray to God that one day you would experience the joy of salvation. But this... Sacrament, this ordinance is only for those who profess faith in Christ and belong to the church, the body of Christ here. So, judge your heart. Repent if there's anything that is holding you back. Anything that is dishonoring the Lord. Anything that you are saying, this takes higher precedence in my life than God. Repent of that right now. And when you are ready, please come up into the center and exit through the side. Okay. So, let's take a moment and pray. Reflect judge your own heart I can't judge you but judge your own heart and when you're ready as as a follower as a pilgrim please come in through the center and we'll exit through the side I read from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 chapter 11 verse 23 for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you for this time where we could reflect and hear your word. And Lord, we dare not remain introspective and simply thinking about what you said and thinking about these charges, thinking about the sins of our lives, Father, we want to actively pursue you in our faith. We want to actively know what it means to be holy and grow in our holiness. Lord, we want to actively grow in our love for one another as the body of Christ. So we examine our own hearts. And as we look, we see so many failures, so many things, Lord. We see the reason why your son had to go up on the cross. So while we are amazingly and so wonderfully thankful for your amazing grace in putting your son Jesus on the cross that had my name, God, It. we also thank you with such godly sorrow. We ask now, Lord, that that you would receive our prayers through your son, that you would receive this worship. We thank you, Lord, for your love. We thank you for your commitment. We thank you, Lord, that you are always blessing us. I pray now, Lord, that you would teach us to be that blesser to others. Help us, Father. We thank you, and in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Please join me.